0: Lockdown is easing, but as the beaches and parks are filling up, are we heading for a second spike?
1: The worry is that we open up now, autumn comes, and it comes back full-throated. It's extremely serious.
0: In a race against time and biology, what have the scientists learned about how to fight the virus?
1: Italy was the first to just chuck the pharmacy cabinet at it. But if it turns out that even surviving can be pretty bad, then that slightly changes all of the calculus.
0: This week marks five long months since the World Health Organisation first declared a public health emergency. But so much about the virus remains a mystery. You're listening to Stories of Our Times, from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana today what do we know about the virus so far and is a second spike inevitable selling a little or a lot
1: Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.
2: Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand-new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history.
1: Right, so I'm walking around my garden and I can't see the tortoise. There's no way you can see a tortoise who doesn't want to be seen. But I have the secret weapon of my Bluetooth and it has not locked on yet...
0: Tom Whipple is the Times science editor and, surprisingly, there's a connection between his pet tortoise and how we're supposed to fight a second spike of the virus. Do you really have a tortoise called Sophocles?
1: I have a tortoise called Sophocles. It's because he's originally a Greek tortoise and I respect his heritage. (laughs) Of course. Yes. So I yes I had a strangely um, pertinent experience with my tortoise because I decided to glue a Bluetooth tracker onto my tortoise. Like a lot of tortoises, he gets lost quite a lot. My idea behind this was if my tortoise went missing, I would press a button on my phone, and my phone would go beep 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 beep, beep as I get closer to my tortoise, and it would make the tortoise play a tune. And it's locked on. So now I need to click Find and hopefully the tortoise will play me its fanfare. And there it is, I still can't see it. It is hiding in a bramble bush. The unexpected perk of this is if I lose my phone, I can find my tortoise and press a button on my tortoise and that causes my phone to ring. (laughs) But this uses Bluetooth technology, which is what we're using for contact tracing. And it's very important that these apps are able to pick up people you meet. One day, about a week ago, I lost Sophocles, and I realised I hadn't seen him for a day or more. I went round with my Bluetooth tracker, and I could not find him anywhere. And I covered every square inch of the garden. Eventually, I was in the garage, and I heard the little fanfare do, and there he was. He'd knocked over a bike and got caught between two metal bars and under a pile of wood. I don't know whether he had a particular sense of ennui for those two days when he was lost and stuck, but I retrieved him and it was fine. But the more pertinent point is that I had passed well within COVID sneezing distance with him many times whilst holding my phone and he had not been activated. So I think that shows the limits of this as a technology that will get us out of this.
0: As well as tracking Sophocles, the tortoise, Tom's been keeping tabs on all the scientific discoveries about COVID-19 ever since the outbreak began. If, like me, you're starting to think you've heard everything there is to hear about the virus, then prepare yourselves. There are some real surprises. Today, we're catching up on everything we've learned about the virus so far and asking whether a second spike is on its way.
1: Our long national... Hibernation is beginning to come to an end.
2: A major incident declared after thousands of people defied advice to stay away.
1: Police say they have been called to investigate reports of a large unlicensed street party. If we move too quickly, which is what I think is uh, being proposed here, the risk of running into a second wave becomes very significant. It is still dangerous. Uh, The virus is still out there. Uh, to, To win, to beat this thing, we have to stay alert.
0: When we first spoke, it was for the first episode of this podcast, and it was about three and a half months ago, and we hadn't gone into lockdown yet. We knew this was a serious virus, but we didn't know very much about it. We're now edging out of lockdown, and a lot of the scientists seem to be talking about a second wave. Do they feel like we are edging out of this too soon?
1: Yes, it's extremely serious. The worry is that we haven't suppressed it enough, The purpose to lockdown was, uh, so firstly, it was to just protect the NHS. It was the only measure that we had. Second, it was to buy time so that we could find out more about the virus, so that we could maybe get treatments. The third reason was to completely suppress it so that when we opened up again, we would be able to control it with measures like contact tracing. We have stop the NHS being overwhelmed. We have bought time so that more drugs can come along. But the worry is that for the want of a few extra weeks of really trying to push down numbers, we open up now, autumn comes, and it comes back full-throated. Unlike in Germany, where at the moment we're seeing big outbreaks, but localised in one area, localised around meatpacking plants, actually the virus will return throughout the country.
0: I mean, it's really interesting. You mentioned Germany there, but all the way through this pandemic, we've been able to look at other countries because they've been a step ahead of us. How many of them are having a second wave of coronavirus?
1: It depends on your definition of second wave. The way that we hope this works, the ideal situation until we get a vaccine is that we come out and you get a few imported cases, you probably get a few imported clusters, you get places where you might even get fairly major outbreaks. But... Our public health system is able to cope with it so those can then be stamped on instantly.
0: Thousands have been quarantined after a major outbreak at a meat plant. It's
1: and been hundreds- a worrying week for many Iranians. The number of daily coronavirus infections is back at record levels. South
2: Korea reported 34 new cases of COVID-19 in just a single day.
1: Hundreds
0: of thousands have become the first in Germany to face lockdown measures for a second time.
2: South Korea's president Moon Jae-in said the country needed to brace for a second wave of
1: the pandemic. Doctors say the threat of a second wave of COVID-19 is very real. So, Germany, I wouldn't say is necessarily a second wave. In Iran, you're seeing cases come back up. If you remember, Iran was one of the early countries to experience this quite badly.
0: Yeah. The United States has recorded an all-time daily high of 40,000 coronavirus infections. In
1: US states, the- well, it's interesting, I don't know if it would be defined as a second wave. But the window is closing. We have to act, and people as individuals have to act responsibly, particularly in these hot zones. You saw the first wave plateau and people get bored, and now the first wave is having a second wave added on top of it.
0: And from the countries, obviously the US sounds slightly exceptional, but from the countries where we've seen a second spike happening, is it as bad as the first?
1: At the moment, so... We haven't seen full-throated second spikes. I mean, South Korea talks about a second wave, but it's at very low levels. We're not seeing countries that are ever really fully opened up. So no, it's not as steep. There's also a sense that we may just tentatively have ways of treating it that'll mean that for those that do get it, it's not quite so bad as it might have been.
0: So there's some hope. There's been a lot of talk amongst scientists about suppressing the virus versus eliminating it, which, which sounds great. I mean, I know New Zealand talked about having eliminated it for a couple of days, but how possible is that without a vaccine to eliminate the virus?
1: So New Zealand, it's a very feasible goal. They're very far from anyone else and they're an island and they can just stop people coming in. That's not a massively dissimilar situation to the UK and maybe we could have pushed for elimination. But the, the wider context to this is that around the world, Cases are still hugely on the increase. So without a vaccine, you could imagine the theoretical situation, which we're not going to hit in the UK. It's completely clear we're not going to hit it, but where we completely eliminated it in the population, but we couldn't then open up because it's there in the rest of the world. So we'd have to effectively isolate us, which is obviously what New Zealand is going for.
0: One of the reasons we went into lockdown was so that it bought us time to learn more about the virus and and what we do about it. Well, three and a bit months later, what have we actually learned? I mean, what have we learned about the virus? Do we have a a clear idea of when it started, for example?
1: There are tens of thousands of scientific papers published on this now, and we've learned an immense amount, but there's an immense amount we have yet to learn. In terms of where it started, I think you'd still place money on it being around... Wuhan. We know it started in bats. Whether it started at the Wuhan food market is now open to question. Really? There have been cases found from people who weren't there. All of this comes amid a sort of miasma of uncertainty, partly because we're just uncertain about everything, partly because the Chinese regime is not the most open of regimes and has strong motivation for remaining not open on this. Um, I will chat to epidemiologists who now say that it's more likely that the Wuhan food market was where there was a super spreading event, but we're not clear.
0: What did we not know then? or What did we get wrong about the virus back then?
1: I think the biggest thing that we've learned about the virus is what it does to us at the beginning, it was viewed as a solely respiratory illness. So this got into you and it messed with your lungs and it made it a lot harder to breathe. And that's what killed you. Now we know that there are three strands to it, of which that's one there's also the thrombosis strand, which involves clots in your blood, particularly in your lungs. And there's the cytokine storm, which I think people have suspected might be the case. This is when your immune system goes wrong. And actually, it's a horrid irony. Your enemy is not the virus. It's your own immune system that's overreacting to it. The reason this disease is so bad, the reason it causes things like the cytokine storm, is because the immune system of old people reacts very differently to it. Italy was the first to think, hang on, there are these other symptoms. There's the immune system, there's the blood, and they just chucked the pharmacy cabinet at it and started trying to treat all of these all at once. And there's tentative evidence that people seemed to have a significantly cut mortality rate because of that. Um, The problem was because they chucked the pharmacy cabinet at it, we had no idea what worked. The first drug. That seems to have had any effect at all was a drug called remdesivir, which interfered with what the virus did, but its effects were pretty small. It seemed to cut the length of time you spent in hospital. The first drug that had any really useful effect, uh, dexamethasone, is this steroid, which is an anti-inflammatory, and. It seemed to cut the mortality rate of people on ventilators by about 30%. And the interesting thing about this is this drug is designed to suppress your immune response to the virus. So it's about controlling an immune system gone wrong rather than actually dealing with the virus itself. But it deals with some of the worst symptoms of the virus.
0: plushcare.com slash weight loss in terms of and we've talked about treatments but we, we started off talking about a vaccine and so much of our sort of strategy around how we deal with this and how people plan their lives comes down to the assumption that we're going to have a vaccine at some point soon how is that going
1: it's going well There are about 160 vaccines currently at different stages of trials. We've reached the stage of having a vaccine ready to trial in unprecedented time. The bit that can't be slowed down massively is the testing. The Oxford vaccine is going into phase two trials where a lot of people are going to start getting it and we're going to see if it works. There are plenty of others that are approaching that stage as well. It's very promising. One of the issues in making vaccines is what happens if the virus mutates, which is why flu vaccines are extremely ineffective, which is why HIV vaccines don't exist 40 years after we started trying. Coronavirus is, for for all that it's completely screwed up our lives, coronavirus is a bog-standard virus. It's not behaving in any particularly unexpected or scientifically exciting ways. It's a fixed target it's unlikely to mutate very fast.
0: Do we know if it is mutating?
1: It is mutating. This is one of the things that, that pops up quite frequently as people talk in shock horror tones about the virus mutating.
0: Yes, because that doesn't sound
1: good. <laughs> it doesn't sound good. We've got this idea from, you know, Spider-Man of radioactive spiders biting you and stuff, and that the mutations are terrible. Mutations are utterly boring and to be expected. Every time something replicates, there's a chance of mutation. Look, at some point, this virus had a mutation that meant that it could switch from bats to humans. That was a pretty epoch-making mutation. Bad mutations can happen, but the general pressure on viruses is for the mutations to make them less severe rather than more severe, because they want to coexist with us rather than kill us.
0: Uh Aha. So it won't have too much of an implication on a potential vaccine. It's not that we'll finally come up with a vaccine and then it's mutation. We've got to start all over again.
1: No the bigger concern with vaccines is that our own bodies forget how to be immune.
0: That's a very good point. I mean we've a lot of the idea of a vaccine is based on the idea that we get immunity. Do we know yet if that's actually a thing? No. <laughs>
1: No. <laughs> uh. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm laughing, but I'm laughing because you might be crying otherwise. That's, a,
0: that's um, a slight problem in the entire plan.
1: <laughs> this, is, this is the biggest question currently in the world. You know, <laughs> This virus did not exist in the universe a year ago. There is one foolproof method that scientists have for determining whether a virus gives you immunity – And that's waiting to see if it gives you immunity and to see how long it lasts. We're at the stage where we're pretty certain that you can't be infected twice in rapid succession. There were a few occasions when it looked like it had happened, but it was probably just false positives in testing. But as to how long immunity lasts, literally the only method we have to be certain is to wait and see.
0: And what does that actually mean about how long it lasts? I mean, is it that the antibodies stop being effective or that your Why does immunity suddenly stop
1: after, say, six months or a year? So the general rule for when you get a virus is the more severe the infection, the more likely that your body is going to remember it. Which makes sense from an evolutionary perspective. Yeah. you know, you can't necessarily remember everything, so you have to prioritize. And there's evidence that if smallpox came back today, which I mean, we've had enough in 2020, so let's hope that those vials in Russian laboratories yeah, aren't going to be let, cracked let's not open. That. <laughs> um, if it came back today, probably people who were vaccinated or infected with it in the 70s, which is when it was last around, would still be immune. That is a really serious virus, really? and our bodies remember it. The common cold, which four strains of it are coronavirus, your immunity lasts a few months, so that's bad because those are coronaviruses. But other coronaviruses, such as SARS one, the one that caused the two thousand and three outbreak, it looks like your immunity lasted a few years for that, which is great. The second aspect to that though, is what does that mean for a vaccine? yeah, so if, let's say, let's hope that the immune response lasts a couple of years, that probably means that the vaccine immune response will last a couple of years. There are ways of boosting the vaccine immune response. So a vaccine has to convince you you've had quite a bad infection, or it wouldn't work for all the reasons we discussed. So it comes in with a thing called an adjuvant, which often irritates your body and makes your body think it's a bad infection. So that can make a vaccine in some cases stronger than the virus that it's trying to protect you against. Now, there's a third aspect to this, which is some people get infected with this really, really badly. Some people barely get infected with it at all, or rather the infection barely causes any disease at all. Now, it may be that those people, and we, we just don't know, those people get significantly less immunity that disappears far faster. Now, there's several reasons that's bad, and one reason that might not be that much of a concern. So the reasons it's bad is obviously if they then go on and get a severe infection later, then that's annoying because they haven't had the immunity from the first one. The second reason it's bad is that means they're still in the population potentially able to be reinfected. But it may be that the reason they got the infection weekly the first time is because for some reason they're far less disposed to getting the virus anyway, in which case at least for them a second reinfection would be no worse than the first reinfection. But it could be that they got it weekly because they were just exposed to only a few viral particles, in which case it remains bad news.
0: Now that's Really interesting about them getting it weekly because they're only exposed to fewer viral particles. As we're coming out of lockdown, there's a lot of talk about one metre, two metre. What do we actually know?
1: There is an increased risk at one metre. We don't know how much. The estimates on the SAGE committee range from two times to ten times. This is not a magic number. If you're running, then you've got a slipstream, which means that the all of the fluid dynamics calculations are completely different. It's just a general heuristic to keep people away from each other. What is less well understood is the extent to which it spreads in finer particles as an aerosol, in which case it can go far greater distances and potentially if you're in a meat packing plant and your air is being recirculated and you're there for a long time and the temperature is low so the virus doesn't die off, that becomes quite pertinent.
0: Aha. And have we learnt much more about how viral load and your exposure to a certain amount of viral load makes you more or less likely to suffer from Covid badly?
1: We would expect strongly from other viruses that the more viral particles make their way into you, the worse the disease is likely to be. It's very likely that that's the case with this. And one of the interesting things is that children seem to shed less of the virus, uh, which implies that they're probably less infectious to other people, which is good news.
0: What do we actually know about coronavirus now in terms of how it kills people? I mean, how deadly is it?
1: The initial figures that we probably talked about in... February haven't really changed. If you're over 80, it's about a 10 to 15% death rate. If you have comorbidities, that significantly increases the death rate. All of that we knew, we now know it with finer precision. Some of the things that we thought might be the case haven't come to pass. If you remember, there was that heady period where we thought, there's just a chance the majority of us might have been infected. Yes. The actual death rate was far lower. We were only seeing the tip of the iceberg and actually we had reached herd immunity. Everything was fine and the world was panicking. That has not come to pass, unfortunately. Uh, I think if we look at antibody tests, we see that 5 to 6% of the UK population has been infected.
0: And in terms of what we know about the illness itself... So we start off thinking it was a respiratory one. Now, you know, you said it seems to be affecting people with blood clots and heart attacks. Why is that?
1: I mean, we don't know. Um, (laughs) Sorry, people have theories. You know, there are hints and clues. There's a, you know, there seems to be quite strong evidence that people with type A blood are in some way worse affected. At the moment, the focus is just on finding out what is happening rather than why it's happening and then trying to find ways to deal with that and mitigate that.
0: And now that it's been a few months, we've seen people get coronavirus and come out the other end. Do we have a better idea about the long-term effects? I mean, I've I've heard people talking about it having a long tail and the symptoms lasting much longer than you'd expect from a normal virus. Do we have any idea of the long-term effects on people's health?
1: There are people who report taking a very long time to get over this, having fatigue for a very long time. In people who are even not that severely affected, there are hints that there is lung damage that can persist. A lot of people end up with this sort of scarring the fibrosis from this. Even people, there was a study out last week, and bearing in mind it was a small number of people, it was in 37 asymptomatic. It was specifically looking at asymptomatic cases. And they found, despite the fact that these people did not know that they had had the disease, they found abnormal CT scans of the lungs, um, implying that there had been damage to the lungs caused by the disease.
0: That's amazing. That's in asymptomatic people.
1: Yeah. So we're going to find out. We're going to find out in the next few years whether this is a disease which is worrying even if you don't die. A lot of what we focus on is the binary. It's about getting people to survive, which is understandable. If it turns out that even surviving can be pretty bad, then that slightly changes all of the calculus.
0: It's interesting that the the scientists have stopped doing the daily briefings for the last couple of weeks, and they seem to be much more vocal now about the advice they gave and how it wasn't in accordance with, with what the policy turned out to be. Do you think there is a sense in the scientific community of sort of wanting to distance themselves from the strategy?
1: There's a worry among scientists that they're going to be left carrying the can and they're going to be the ones blamed for the policy decisions. I think that's definitely the case. I spoke to the incoming head of the Royal Society who said he was very worried that they'd be using this idea that the scientists should end up being the scapegoat. I spoke to Sir David King, the former chief scientific advisor, who said that he felt that Patrick Vallance had been given a what in rugby they call a hospital pass.
0: A hospital pass.
1: <laughs> the ball's flying towards you and so is a 15-stone fullback and uh, you know that you're going to get flattened as soon as you catch it. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, there's this growing idea that might be the case. But science, science is not a pure thing with all of the answers anyway. And, you know, I think there might well be, at the nexus where science meets politics and policy, I think there might be, well be questions to be answered for all of them.
0: I know it's unfair to ask for predictions, but how do you see the next six months or so panning out?
1: If I was to do the reasonable expectation, we will probably not ease up the lockdown much more. By the autumn, I would hope that we have a far, far better contact tracing system. But our world will be very far from normal. Hopefully by early 2021, we will get a vaccine in By that stage, a lot of the discourse will have moved away from developing the vaccine to working out how on Earth we make enough doses for every single person on the planet. I suspect it'll probably be another year at least before every single person on the planet has got it. But selfishly in the West, I suspect, we'll be at the front of that queue. And maybe by the time we see spring arrive in 2021, we will have returned in Britain at least to something closer to normal. And maybe we'll be considering spending a little bit more time planning for future pandemics. A tortoise is an animal of scant dignity at best, so I always feel like a noble fanfare like that is appropriate for it.
0: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, The Times Science Editor, Tom Whipple. You can read more of Tom's work on science and tortoises at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producers were James Shield and Asio Fuchs. The executive producer is Leo Hornack, and the deputy executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Nicola Rawfast, Music by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you get a chance, please do leave us a review. You can find us in all the usual places, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, and now also on Times Radio. You can get more analysis, opinion and advice from the experts every day with a digital subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times. Visit thetimes.co.uk slash subscribe to find out more. See you tomorrow.